Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Laura Jean McKay. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week, we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books that you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcast from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. And I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gundungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connections to their lands. This is stolen land. Treaty was never made in Australia. Laura Jean McKay is the author of Holiday in Cambodia. She's a lecturer in creative writing and is the animal expert on ABC's Animal Sound Safari. But today, Laura is joining us because her latest book, The Animals in That Country, won the 2020 Victorian Premier's Literary Awards. It's the richest literary award in Australia. The Animals in That Country explores a pandemic sweeping across Australia that leaves the infected with mild cold symptoms, pink eyes, and the ability to hear and communicate with animals. The story takes us into a conservation reserve where Jean works as a guide, as much from her love of animals as for her love for her granddaughter Kimberly. Initially, the reserve is free from zoo flu, but how long can the quarantine last and can Jean protect Kimberly? Join me as we discover Laura Jean McKay's The Animals in That Country. Hello, this is Laura. Hello, Laura. It's Andrew Popel calling from 2SER. How are you? Good. How are you? I am very good. Um, thank you for taking the time this morning and congratulations on your win. So incredible. Oh, thank, thank you so much. <laughs> I imagine there's still a huge glow from, I mean, it was only Monday night, so. Oh, I, I actually haven't come to town with it yet. Like, <laughs> I've been getting hundreds and hundreds of messages from uh, kind support and, and messages from well-wishers, and I'm just a babbling mess in my replies, I'm afraid. <laughs> I think it, it might hit me in a few weeks. <laughs> Can I be cheeky? Any messages from, from four-legged fans and followers? Um, well, yes, as I, as I cycle to work every day, um, you know, I, I go past the cows and uh, I'm in New Zealand, so there's, there's a lot of cows and, uh, and you know, I, I see the birds and I feel like, you know, they're saying something. They know. They know deep down. <laughs> I can't wait to get into that. In fact, I'm, I'm half expecting um, a furry friend. I had one of my cats jumping up. Uh, on the desk trying to, you know how they like to sleep on laptops and things like that? They love that, don't they? Machines and warm places. Mm, so I'm half expecting um, a, a very apt interruption. But um, I can't wait. I can't wait to talk about the animals in that country and just the incredible stuff that you've done. Um, Thank you. It is such a delight to be here and um, celebrate this with you. <laughs> it's and I mean, I think it's worth noting. I mean, literary awards are a big deal, but I feel also regular readers might not keep too closely abreast. It's important to say that the Victorian Premier's Literary Award it's made up of several awards, of which you won you won the the big category as well as the category for like literature for fiction. So that's huge. That's incredible. It's such it's such an amazing night. Um, I've often attended the event in Melbourne, 
And it's just held at a hot time of the year. It's always hot. People dress up. It's just a big hug fest. It's so beautiful to go there and support everyone, um, especially because it's that stage sort of prize. You know, there's a People's Choice Award. There's the category awards for fiction and nonfiction and poetry and unpublished manuscript. Um, and then there's that big prize. So everyone is just holding their breath. And even though it was online this year, there was that same feeling. They did, really did a great job of creating that exciting atmosphere. Mm. We're all and, and yeah, it's good to go to a Zoom where it's, you know, a big celebration and not just, you know, you've, you've put on a business shirt, but you're still wearing pyjamas underneath. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Even though, you know, um, we, we might have all still been doing that. <laughs> Fine. We won't tell anyone. <laughs> just you and I talking, right? Yeah, just, just the two of us. Now, you won for your, your novel, The Animals in That Country. I was reading a little bit of the animals in that country this morning. I was just getting prepped for our chat with my cats. They were sort of circling around me, asking for food, asking for belly rubs, or at least that's what I thought. Because your book, your book has changed those interactions forever, I think. Because the animals in that country, it explores a pandemic sweeping across Australia that leaves the infected with mild cold symptoms, pink eyes, and the ability to hear and communicate with animals. The story, it takes, right. us, yeah, it takes us into a conservation reserve where Jean works as a guide as, uh, as much, I guess, from her love of animals as her love for her granddaughter, Kimberly. And initially, the, the reserve is free from zoo flu, as it's been called. But how long that quarantine can last? Mm. Now, when I mentioned the conceit of, the, of sort of that animal-human com- communication to people, much like Kimberly, they're, they're initially thrilled at the idea of hearing their pets' professions of love. Was it like that for you at first, this idea? Actually, yes. Uh, I thought, um, wouldn't it be incredible if the language barrier was taken away? I'm constantly staring, especially at wild animals. And I was thinking, oh, I'd, I'd love to know what they, what's really going on for them um, and to be able to sort of communicate my wonder <laughs> at what they are um, to them as well. Um, but once I started getting into the writing and the research for the novel, um, I realised or, or came to terms with maybe the fact that our relationship with other animals is very fraught. It's a very uneven power dynamic that we have. We're super apex predators in this world. It's a very violent relationship. Uh, even with animals that uh, we call part of our family, it's never really equal, even though we like to think that our cats have domination over us. Of course, um, they're in a very vulnerable position. They they rely on us um, for a lot of things, in, including their safety. Absolutely. And, I mean, the idea was instantly complicated for me, and as well as all the beautiful little um, rubs and, and headbutts that you get, I also thought back to the times that I wake up in the morning with a lifted tail and a fuzzy little butt in my face, and I'm like, I am not certain that this is this is happy communication that I'm getting here. But of course, you <laughs> you expand that so much more. That's right. I You just reminded me of um, I was house-sitting one time and the house came along with a lovely big ginger cat and I was the cat was really great and one day I was in bed with a migraine and the cat spent 
an owl circling the bed and screeching at me. And I thought, there's something going on here. This has never happened before. And like, yeah, you chose this moment. Like, are you feeling, you know, upset because I'm in a certain state or what is going on here? Um, and I suppose in the book, um, once they start to feel ill and, and, uh, start to understand what these other animals are saying, they realise they're not saying what what we want them to say. They're not saying, I love you. Um, they have their own thing going on. Animals have their own lives that are separate from us and they're also very, very affected by us. So there's this sort of um, push and pull the whole way. And as Jean, who's the main character in the novel, she's a hard-drinking, smoking, um, zoo-guide grandma, um, as she goes along on her journey through this sort of animal apocalypse, um, some of her power as a human starts starts dissipating and the animals become a bit stronger in the novel. And it was really important to me uh, that that came out, that these animals gained power as, as the novel built and as the language built in the piece. Yeah. In the world of the, the wildlife reserve, Jean occupies kind of a liminal zone. As a grandmother to Kimberly, she's she very much loves Kimberly. They've got this incredible relationship, but she's seemingly tolerated by Ange, who's Kimberly's mum, and as well as the other rangers. And when Kimberly's dad Lee returns, um, he's infected. He's infected with zoo flu. We have what we might. I guess now call a breach in hotel quarantine that threatens the park. Can you talk though a little bit about that that park ecosystem and the tensions that you explored through the animals as they're finding their voice? So I was really really lucky to get to uh, be an artist in residence uh, at the Northern Territory Wildlife Park, uh, and I got the chance to live under a ranger's house in a caravan for a few months. And just be there in that amazing environment. Uh, when I arrived at the park, because the novel was set on a farm and it was it was not going well. The, the novel was it was pretty stale. And once I got to that incredible environment uh, in the Northern Territory um, with all those amazing native animals and the rangers with so much experience, I realised that um, this was a, the sort of world that that um, I'd like to create for this novel. Um, but there's that real tension um, in in any environment like that because uh, a lot of the animals uh, in the novel are institutionalized and so they're they're saying confusing things so the main one of the main characters the animal characters is called Sue um, and Sue and Jean have a great relationship together um, even when they can't talk to each other um, but when Sue is able to be understood, on the one hand, she relies. She's very institutionalised, and she relies on the comfort of the fence and and being safe and being fed at a certain time. And on the other hand, as the rangers um, in real life would always remind me, a dingo is always wild. Um, she will she will never become completely captive, thank goodness. And so she has this wild side where she wants to run, she wants to pack. And for Jean, that's a very sort of conflicting message and very very hard to understand at first. I was absolutely fascinated by the way that you established the reciprocal nature of the animal-human communication. So Kimberly has to teach Jean that to properly understand, she must take in everything. She, she's got to look at the animals, the, the sight, the smell, the body language. And you realise this in 
there are moments where Jean is kind of only half listening or, or catching snippets, and it's this almost surrealist poetry of Jean's interpretations of what the animals are saying. I think I can't remember exactly, but at one point, an animal says something. She's like, they would have no idea about that. What is, how how could they possibly be talking about that? But of course, that's what Jean's hearing and not what they're saying. I thought there was kind of an environmental critique at play here in the in the sort of that power relationship you just described. But maybe also a closer look at the way we as humans, we too often fail at empathy. Absolutely. Um, and that I'm really glad you sort of brought up that translation because everything, uh, every sort of, every bit of animal language that comes across in the novel is mediated through Jean's character. She's, she's the one interpreting everything. So at first when she's talking to Sue the dingo, um, she thinks that Sue is calling her queen, you know, so it's this very imperialistic <laughs> tone and, and Jean is, is quite quite pleased with that. But as the novel develops and as Jean starts actually properly paying attention to Sue's body language and the messages that she's sending, she realises that, no, it's, it's not queen, maybe, maybe it's mother and then maybe it's, um, you know, a uh, cat dog at one point <laughs> Sue is calling her and, and sort of other less less um less friendly terms. And that's and that sort of comes through in any sort of translation. Um it's you know, the translated books into English often have this complexity of who is translating it and, and what the relationship between the writer and the and the translator is. Uh, and we see that also just in our relationships with other people every day. Um, if there's an uh, a, a, um, imbalance of power, the person in power often won't look at the whole picture, won't sit back and really listen and pay attention, won't um, take into account where the other person comes from. Um, there might be different different cultural aspects. Um, they will just take a little bit of information and run with it, or just say, "Oh, I can't understand you." You know, uh, you know, you're not making any sense. You're you're stupid. Uh, and in a way, that's sort of what we do to the environment as well. We we barge on in and we we take from it and we use it um, without really paying attention to the fact that um, there is a lot going on. Um, we're breaking it, and uh, we need to really listen, take a step back, and and work out a new way of being. In terms of where the animals in that country sit, this is a remarkable, unique novel, but there is, a, there is kind of a rich history, particularly in science fiction, of this idea of like a universal translator. You know, Douglas Adams had the Babel fish that pops, pops in the ear for hitchhikers. Um, Doctor Who's TARDIS has kind of a translation field and that's seen as a great leveller. And it strikes me you have you have blown that up in showing us the power dynamics at play because as, as communication, it breaks down those barriers between the animals and the human animals. We see both, I guess, a wilding of human spaces and a return, as at one point you say, the whole world had been returned to its proper darkness. Now, one point, Sue, the dingo, she exclaims to Jean, bloody colony. In what sense did you want to draw that parallel and explore those power dynamics with colonialism and colonial thinking in the animal sort of human dynamic? Mm. Uh, I guess um, I guess my... That, well, the thing, being a, a white um, colonial settler woman um, in Australia, I, I don't think 
there's always, um, or there should always be an acknowledgement of that position and what that position means. And I think a lot of us, including me, um, don't pay attention to that enough and, um, and try to, you know, um, change things about, about that position of, of absolute privilege. Um, in my research, I guess my background is in, is in post-colonialism and, and decolonization. So everything that I write, um, <laughs> is about that, even if it's not, if you know what I mean. Um, that's always, always present in the work. And when we're writing about Australia, we're writing, um, not about one country, but about hundreds of countries. And, and, um, there's, and there's a real lack of understanding of the incredible culture um, that make up these countries. So even though this is not a book um, that comments directly on on Australia as it is now and, and our colonised state, it, it always is. I, I think that, that anyone who is writing or, or making art about Australia needs to or, or is commenting in a certain way. It's really interesting to watch that evolution as well of just that very, very close, very small relationship. I mean, we consider a, you've got a country in the grips of pandemic, but between Jean and Sue, we, we have, as you pointed out, Jean initially interpreted what Sue was saying as queen. She she figures it through to mother. And we've got that situation of Sue is released from her cage and then she is able to leave the reserve and she travels alongside Jean. But there's always... There's always um, a, a really dynamic power structure that Jean tries to ma- maintain and stay on top of. There's one moment where Sue is Sue is working so hard to to break down those barriers, and she's always referring to Jean as as kindred. Um, she she sees sort of uh, Sue as this person who helped her when she was a, a baby dingo when she was a pup, and. Sue retorts to her at one point, not not you. So I think Sue had said something about her being family. She says, not you, my real family, which sends Sue into a funk. And again, just thinking about those power structures and that constant rebuffing, like the sort of this simple sense of, well, I've let you out of your cage. Why can't you be happy? We're equal now. That that was devastating. Absolutely. Uh, you know, Sue, I think from, I, well, I hope that moment... Um, Really highlights the, the difference in perspective between those two characters um, because they have a lot in common. Sue and Jean, they've both had really, really hard lives. Um, you know, Jean is is going through a really crappy divorce. She's very, very lonely. She finds it really hard to get along with people, and she's trying to just um, keep close the little in a way that she has. Um, but Sue was, um, you know, it was. Born into the wild, um, you know, next to her brothers, and then and then taken to a an enclosure and um, put on show and spends her entire life being looked at by other people. So she comes from a very difficult background as well, and I think that's the thing that really brings them together, um, as well as them as circumstance bringing them together. In that in that Jean is there when Sue first opens her eyes as a little puppy. Um, there's there's also also this sort of um, shared sort of, um, you know, difficult background. Mm. But there's also the huge separation um, from, you know, they're both, these are both people searching for kin, but Sue has accepted completely that this kin can come in multi-species ways. Um, mm. she's, she's fine um, with, with making her pack 
um, a human and then go back <laughs> if that's what, you know, if that's what life has offered her. But Jean can't really come to terms with that. Um, and, and that's just, um, just a real moment of, of horror for Sue. It occurs to me we're talking pandemics here, like we're old hands, which I guess, <laughs> I guess we are. Um, the narrative, the narrative, it shows us circumstances and precautions that have become part of our day to day. As you composed the animals in that country, like what was your relationship with this idea that a pandemic could change us so utterly? I oh, the answer to this is so so multifaceted. <laughs> fascinated. <laughs> the answer to this is so I'm fascinated. Multifaceted. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fascinated. <laughs> um, so. Well, first of all, the pandemic, in its fair extent in the novel, was a plot device. I needed a lot of people to be able to suddenly communicate with other animals. And uh, I had been an aid worker um, in the past and had done work responding to the SARS uh, epidemic. And so I knew um, how a, a pandemic went. I knew the trajectory of of that, and anyone who has has worked in um, that sort of area knows that these things often follow a path. There are surprises along the way, but they they do have a particular arc that they follow. Uh, so um, that you know that seems like a, a good way to go in the novel. But also, there's this other <laughs> more physical aspect in that uh, when I had just started writing the novel in, in earnest. I was bitten by a mosquito in Bali and the mosquito gave me a disease called chikungunya, uh, which is a very sort of um, a horrible, evil cousin of dengue. And I became very, very sick. Um, I was feverish. uh, My skin turned red. My uh, skin peeled off (laughs) after that. Um, I was delirious. And I realized that I had had this intense connection with a mosquito, you know, this tiny, tiny little thing suddenly had this extraordinary power over me and uh, was a very sort of dangerous and impressive animal indeed. And so I was writing this novel in which people were starting to get sick and I was getting sicker and sicker. And so the novel, the people in the novel and I were experiencing this this, um, overtaking of our body and this state that was almost incomprehensible. And uh, so in a way that, that made it easier for me to, to create that world and really truly understand what these characters might be experiencing. For some strange reason, as you were telling that story, um, John Donne's poem, The Flea, just sort of drifted into my head. I so much to blame your eight English for. Uh, if you're not familiar with the poem, it's it's this kind of pseudo-erotic poem where Dunn, you know, writing at a time where you weren't writing a lot of sex, was kind of describing the union of man and woman in the uh, in a flea bite. They're commingling. It's it's weird. I'm going to have to edit this out of the interview. <laughs> That's an amazing year eight text. I'm going to have to look that one up. Oh, yeah, John. John. What were they thinking? John Dunn, oh, he was he was he was a wild man in his youth, and then a then a minister in his old age, and um, yeah, if you if you just like one day, I'm I haven't had enough of old white men in the patriarchy. Go back and, and listen to some John Dunn. <laughs> Read some John Dunn. I Dunn. mean, is there ever enough? Like, there's That's, not, you know. <laughs> how can you ever get enough? As a work of literature, you are engaging 
widely with, um, I guess, with, with genre, but also literary works and philosophy as a work of environmental criticism, but also uh, we, we've already talked a little bit about um, colonisation, but because as Jean, <laughs> as Jean hits the road to rescue Kimberly, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just leave the tension there hanging for people to discover, but as Jean hits the road to rescue Kimberly, I noticed that despite the degradation of, of human society, that this was not all an absolute descent into anarchy. So many characters we meet seem to glory at the world of, of animals and this communication with animals. So did you have the sense that you were occupying a dystopian or a utopian space in the animals in that country? That's a good question. I mean, I'm writing... It's an apocalyptic novel, really. Um, you know, a lot of novels are post-apocalyptic um, and, you know, it's something terrible has happened and this is how we cope <laughs> with the aftermath. But in this novel, um, you know, I wrote it in the first person and in that present tense very, very consciously so that we're right there in the moment when this is occurring. So in that way, I don't know whether it's dystopian or or utopian. Um, I mean, it's both, <laughs> I hope. Uh, I guess most people reading it would judge it as a dystopia, but for some people in the novel and, and for some animals in the novel, it, it this is a this is a world that is that is bettered by this disease. There is um, some understanding and just because the world as we know it is completely um, tipped upside down and, and everything that we know um, has, you know, gone to hell, uh, is that such a bad thing? Is the world that we've created um, the best world? Is there, do we need a bit of a, a shake-up in order to, you know, to, to change things for the better? Having said that, as in every case, and as we see in this current uh, climate, especially with coronavirus, it's the people who are already suffering who suffer the most um, from these huge world events. And, uh, you know, in the, in the novel, uh, there are people who have taken to the streets and they're, they're um, you know, doing sort of backyard surgery on themselves in an effort to try to get away from these animal voices. And in these situations, people become very desperate. And we're seeing that all over the world. There's a lot of people suffering at the moment and it's not the rich people. <laughs> so um, that's, that's always the, um, the risk of, of imagining that, that uh, you know, shaking the world up or that these huge events um will be ultimately better. Maybe they will be better for a lot of people, but for a lot it's just really, really hard. I could not think of a more perfect note for us to end this conversation on, Laura. I'm speaking with Laura Jean McKay. Her novel, The Animals in That Country, has won the 2020 Victorian Premier's Literary Award, and you need to discover this book, dear listener. It is it is phenomenal. I mean, forget the award the idea of talking animals is one that you need to discover and look at your own place in the world. Laura, thank you so much. Thank you so much for the opportunity to, to discuss this. It's been such a delight to talk to you. Your questions are incredible and really given my brain a run for its money. <laughs> so thank you. That's it for this great conversation with Laura Jean McKay. Laura's novel, The Animals in That Country, is the 2020 winner of the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards. And a huge congratulations to all the winners across all the categories. 
Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gundagara people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us. We uh, tweet at Final Draft to SER. Subscribe in your podcast app. You'll get a new great conversation every week to this week, in fact. My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. And as always, till then, happy reading. <laughs>